0: It's the Captain Rick Jones coming to you for another edition of From the Bridge. Uh, As many of you know, I'm a huge Jimmy Buffett fan, and his breakthrough album was Changes in Latitude, Changes in Attitude. I still have that album both on CD and on vinyl. Uh, You may remember that record album also included a little song you might be familiar with called Margaritaville. (laughs) Uh, but the title song was Changes in Latitude, Changes in Attitude. Today's show is all about change, because whether we like it or not, change is inevitable. My guest Angler knows a lot about change. Gordon Whitner has reinvented himself and his businesses multiple times in the past and continues to do so. We'll talk a lot about the changes he thinks are coming. I'll also talk about the need for real change on my soapbox. And we'll talk about a place where you can get a whole lot of food for a little bit of change on the road with Rick. In my book, Analog Advice in a Digital World of Baby Boomers, Words of Wisdom for the Millennial Generation, I wrote this story, and I'm going to actually read from the book this morning. I once watched an interview of a man on his 100th birthday. The young reporter asked the man if he had seen any changes in his lifetime. And he said, yes, I have, and I was against every one of them. (laughs) That response is pretty funny, but it's also pretty pointless. The truth is, when it comes to change, you can fight it, embrace it, or lead it. That's it. Put it another way, There are three types of people in the world, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who unfortunately say, what happened? I choose to make things happen. I choose to change before change changes me. How about you? So our question uh, today is, what do you need to change to make you more effective, more successful, and above all, more fulfilled? It really starts, I think, with self-evaluation. Shakespeare wrote it best. He said, to thine own self be true. You have to first be very honest with yourself before you can change yourself. Now, I talk to myself a lot, and that may sound weird, but I need to be in touch with me regularly in order to lead, to produce, to sell, and to serve. I have to constantly question myself, motivate myself, lead myself, and make sure I stay true to my value system because my value system is the foundation for everything I think, I say, and I do. Now, I have this wonderful little formula I like to use about change. Uh, the formula goes D plus V plus P is less than the cost of the change, let's talk about that for a minute. The D says you have to have some dissatisfaction. You don't like where you are. That doesn't mean you're in a bad place, but you know you could be in a better place. And so you're dissatisfied with where you are. Then you add the V, which is vision. Where would you like to go? What would you like to change? Uh, You add to that then the P, which is the plan, the process. How do you get from where you are to where you want to be? And all that needs to be less than the cost of the change. And I'm going to tell you a great story about cost of change. I knew a guy who was a lawyer in Atlanta, and he was a very good lawyer. In fact, he had been a, an all-Southeastern Conference defensive end uh, playing under Coach Vince Dooley at Georgia and had a really a terrific legal career. And, um, but his church... Uh, he went to a Presbyterian church in Atlanta, and they asked him to lead the fundraising effort to build a new sanctuary at his church. And so he went through that process, <clears throat> and um, in that process, um, raised the money, got the, 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 uh, the building built. And <clears throat> the day of the dedication, uh, he was just very proud. I mean, he was recognized for what he did, and, and he was just very proud and fulfilled by that. And he came home that afternoon. And he went out in his backyard and got in his hammock with a notepad. And he'd been out there a couple of hours. And his wife came out and said, you know, what are you doing? He said, you know, today was so gratifying, so fulfilling. I, I just don't think I can go back to being a lawyer. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And Billy Payne said, I want to bring the Olympic Games to Atlanta, Georgia. And he did. He wanted to combine what he loved, sports and community service, um, and he was able to do that. Now, here's why he could do it. The cost of the change wasn't that great. Atlanta was a big city. It had a big airport. It had lots of hotel rooms. It had lots of sporting venues. And so that was a feasible dream. Now, let's say I get in my hammock this afternoon and I decide I'm going to bring the Olympic Games to Charleston. Well, I'm not. Our airport's not big enough. We don't have enough hotel rooms, and we certainly don't have the infrastructure to be able to to run the Olympic Games. But the truth is this, nine times out of ten, the change we fight are emotional changes. We fight that it won't work here, or I tried that, or you don't understand our industry, blah, 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 blah. And so we have to overcome that. So I ask you again, what do you want to change today? Because all change begins with changing yourself. Let's get back up on that soapbox. In 1963, Sam Cooke, the great soul singer, wrote and recorded a song called A Change is going to come, a song which became an anthem for the civil rights movement in America. And yes, as we've discussed so far today, in every facet of life, change is going to come. But for many Americans, change has not come fast enough or far enough. Our ongoing racial strife leads me to believe that what we've tried to do and continue trying to do simply is not working. We passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, declaring war on both inequality and poverty. That's nearly 60 years ago. So how's that worked out? Einstein said insanity is doing the same things over and over again, hoping for different results. Maybe it's time for some fresh thinking. And I mean totally fresh thinking because what we are doing now and have been doing for over half a century is not working. My guest angler today is my buddy Gordon Whitener. Gordon is one of my uh, what I call consigliaries. He's, he's a guy who I seek out for advice and counsel on a regular basis. He's had a brilliant career by reinventing not only himself, but whole industries. Gordon is currently the president of the Whitener Company, which invests in numerous companies. We're going to look at his career and then ask for his opinions about the future, both near and far. Let's welcome my pal, Gordon Whitener, to The Bridge. Gordon, it's great to have you today.
1: Boy, I appreciate it, Rick. So, so great to catch up with you.
0: Well, you've had a, a fascinating career. I, I, I've said no one has reinvented both uh, himself and 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 literally industries the way that that you have. Uh, I know you're a Georgia boy like me. Tell me, uh, tell me about where you get started and how your your path began.
1: You know, Rick, my I had a just a really fortunate um couple parents you know I grew up in Dalton Georgia for the most part I was born in Chattanooga and then we quickly moved uh, just to you know down to down to Dalton um where my dad really kind of started his entrepreneurial life and and um just just so fortunate to to grow up with with a loving family had you know great brother and sister that were quite a bit older than me so I'm pretty certain I was a surprise um, although my parents never said that but I was um, you know just just fantastic came up through Dalton public schools um, you know had a great athletic programs Dalton has a long history of of tremendous sports so I was a free sport guy you know played played football baseball and and ran track and um, was fortunate enough out of, um, out of high school to sign a baseball scholarship at the University of Tennessee and came to Tennessee and really played horribly and was terrible, and, and they uh, unceremoniously cut me. Um, and I, my real goal at that time, really since I was probably in eighth grade, was to be a college football coach. And so when I got cut from the baseball team, Fortunately, Coach Majors and his staff hired me, and, and I worked my way through college working for them. And just a, a, an incredible experience. Um, well, Coach Majors
0: know, recently passed away. And, um, you know, his daddy, Shirley Majors, was um, an amazing football coach for decades at Swanee at the University of the South. And when I went to Swanee as an assistant basketball coach under Jerry Waters, it was Coach Majors' last year. Uh, coaching, and he was really, really good to me. So it's interesting how the majors family intersected both of our lives.
1: Well, and so many lives. I mean, you know, between all the brothers, um, you know. In fact, you know, when when and we'll get to that. But when we shot the the movie here in Tennessee with Burt Reynolds, his final film, um, he came out to to see. Bert at the set because Joe majors and he played together at Florida state. And so it's just, you know, when you talk about the majors, it's just really amazing. And, and while we're talking about him, literally two weeks before he passed, it was his 85th birthday. And, and I had texted him just to say, happy birthday coach. And, and he called me like within an hour right back. And, and he had this uh, particularly later in life, had this incredible um, ability to just make you feel good. And he, you know, thanked me for, you know, all these contributions that he, he said I made to the program, which I didn't feel like I made any of them, but he made me, he made me feel good and that. And he was very good at that. And, and uh, it was just, it was just pretty cool. But um, I think people anyways, forget,
0: so, people forget what a great player he was. I oh, mean, I, think he fin- I think he should have won the Heisman Trophy. I think he yeah, finished absolutely. second. But no, you know, there was such a prejudice yeah. against the South.
1: Yeah, he won era. it. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and Notre Dame that year won two games. I yeah, think you know. Yeah. And uh yeah, yeah, Majors was a. In fact, all of them were great players. Bobby was a great player. Joe was a good player. Bill you know, was a, was a good player and, and coach who was tragically killed. And when, when, uh, when three Tennessee coaches were killed, when a train hit their yeah. car here in Knoxville and, and just, so, um, yeah, it was an amazing family. Mother, and father were, were unreal. So, but anyway, so, you know, so I, I, I had a great experience here, got to do, uh, got to do and see things that, you know, at my age were just amazing. And then of course, um, when I, when I graduated here, my good friend, Kevin Steele had gone to coach at Oklahoma state and a year ahead of me. And, and, uh, when I graduated, he got me an interview there and they hired me. And so my college football career started, you know, at Oklahoma state, I was initially a graduate assistant football coach, coaching the wide receivers with Houston Nutt. Um, so he was my first you know boss other than the head coach uh, out of school. and that was a great experience. Houston's a phenomenal guy and a, and a really tremendous football coach. yeah, and another great family. I mean unbelievable family, yeah. great stories, and four again, four brothers, just like the majors and and um, amazing parents who were both deaf and, uh, and just just a phenomenal story. So just the experiences you know I had. and then, and then I got a break when I was at Oklahoma State, it was 22, uh, the recruiting coordinator at Oklahoma State got in some NCAA trouble and they, they let him go and, and I got promoted. And, and so I had just, uh, at 22 was a, on a big eight full-time staff coaching college football and was just, uh, very, very fortunate, you know, so, um, just, you know, and Pat Jones of course was our head coach and we won a bunch of games and, we had Thurman Thomas and Barry Sanders and Mike Gundy was our quarterback and so it was it was just a blessed time and in, certainly in, in my life.
0: Well, you're such a Tennessee fan obviously first and foremost, but you also have become because of your time there such a big Oklahoma State fan. Did did you meet Boone Pickens during
1: that era or was that later in your career? You know, I really met him later. You know, at that time Boone was was not really uh, heavily involved in certainly in football and all that. He was, he, he had really started his, his entry into really athletics was through the golf program. And Mike Holder's just unbelievable run as a head golf coach at, at Oklahoma state. And he, he got Boone and a, and a bunch of other really great Oklahoma state alumni involved in the golf program. And that was, that was really the front porch for lots of people, to come in you know that have have turned out to be amazing donors to oklahoma state that's really that was the that was their entry point you know so i met boone you know later but um but anyways get sort of to continue on so i was you know living my life's dream coaching you know at oklahoma state and um because i'm from dalton you know Our athletic director said, "Hey, you—you know, we need some free carpet, you know, or at least we need a deal. Can you go? Can you go find us some white? Look, I— even though I grew up there, I had no idea even where to start. And but my search led me to uh, to a guy named Charlie Idle, and and Charlie, strangely enough, was um, was was running." a carpet company in Dalton, Georgia, a commercial carpet company. And he was an Oklahoma state graduate. And so just by happenstance, um, you uh, know, there's no
0: happenstance. We know that. <laughs> I mean, you know,
1: so, so I, I found my way to him and I called him up on the phone and I was uh, pretty brash in those days. And I just said, here's who I am. and We'd love for you to contribute to the program, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, look, I'm going to make a speech to the business school in about a month. Why don't, uh, why don't we have breakfast? So it was right in the middle of the season and he, he flew in and we we had breakfast uh out west of Stillwater and and I put this big pitch on him at breakfast about how he needed to give us free carpet for the athletic department. About halfway through my spiel he stopped me and he said, Hey look, I, I'm gonna give you the carpet, but I want you to come to work for me. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> and I said and, and again I'm I'm you know I'm a little confident in myself and I said hey look I'm I'm living my life stream. I appreciate it but you know I'm I'm doing what I always wanted to do and you know and he said and he's a smart guy he said hey look it's right in the middle of the season he said I bet you haven't been home in a while He said look I'll fly you home next weekend y'all have an off weekend be on my nickel you tour the plan on Friday you go to dinner, you know, with me and, and uh, no harm, no foul. If you don't, you're not interested, you're not interested, but at least you get to see your, your parents. So gosh, you know, I was at that time it was long before, um, the Jimmy sections of the world started helping coaches. So coaches were poor as you know. So I think at that time I was probably making, you know, 17,000. So a free trip Back to home was uh, was a, a definite. Uh, yeah,
0: you if you were going to go home, b- b- not on his nickel, you were going to drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I so I so I did it and and uh, and visited and you know it, it was there was something about this guy it was really you know he was really something, and I had a great visit and I you know I'd always had a little business in me and so it was like okay, but I was right in the middle of the season and I'm recruiting coordinator so I you know I said I told him I said look, I can't even think about this until. You know, mid February, late February, yeah. yeah, yeah, after signing day. So, so life went on. I was, you know, um, doing my thing, and and as the season ends, you know, he's still staying in touch with me, and I'm, and there's something about him, you know, that just keeps drawing me to him. His leadership, you know, characteristics, and and and, it, and right when this everything was kind of the season was coming to a close, and recruiting was coming to a close, the recruiting coordinator job at Tennessee comes open. And, and Philip Fulmer, you know, was an assistant to coach majors at the time and he called me and, and just said, Hey, you know, come home. we'd <laughs> love to talk. Well, we'd yeah. love to talk to you about it. And then strangely enough, Larry Marmee, who I'd worked, you know, for at Tennessee under coach majors, um, you know, he, he had just gotten the head coaching job at Arizona state. He actually came and spent the night with me in Stillwater and, and, um, and said, hey, you know, you might want to think about coming to Arizona State, and so I'm right now, you know, I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm 23, and, and, you know, just like, you know, there's, I'm looking at three different opportunities in college football, but there's this, this, this thing sitting out there with this guy, Charlie Idol, And there's just something about this guy, and so I was so torn, and I felt like, look, I can't, you know, even if Tennessee offered me something, I don't know that, you know, I can leave Pat Jones at Oklahoma state who took a chance on me when I was 22, you know, I want to do that. So to make a very long story short, I, I, you know, labored over the decision. And finally it, it just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go follow this guy, Charlie Idon. And it ended up being a, you know, just a tremendous um, decision for me. I, Charlie and I were together for 12 years two different companies. Um, I kinda started out in sales and worked my way up to sort of his number two and and the the first six years we were at a company called Collins and Aitman, which was a just a dramatic turnaround. And and I like I said worked myself up to sort of his number two guy. And and then we got hired away by a company called Interface. And for the next six years we we turned that company around and the last five of that I led a group of uh, called Interface America, which is you know very large company, seven hundred fifty million or so, four thousand employees and we had a historic run there and and I just it was phenomenal and then i I learned a, a real valuable lesson you know Charlie and the chairman founder kind of got into it over the dr- future of the company, and he and Charlie split ways and so i you know here's a guy that I sort of based my whole career around, and he's gone. And so I agreed to stay for about five months with, um, you know, in, in, a, in a transition because I knew this guy was going to want, you know, he knew I was tied to Charlie and he was going to want his own thing. They were great to me. And I stayed. And then in, in literally December of 99, um, I sort of decided uh, with them that we that I was done, you know, with corporate America for a while and literally we had no idea, you know, what in the world I was going to do. And so I'm sitting in, uh, at that time, with Georgia, um, Susie and I just built our dream home on a ranch in Rockmark, Georgia. And, and, uh, and so we just, I'm sitting there, you know, and some guys came to me and said, this rodeo associations going broke. And if you, if you probably, if you just take over some of the bills, you can just, you know, if you want, if you had some interest and I'd always had a real love of the West and been infatuated with Cowboys and the whole thing, John Wayne. And so we, um, yeah, I just, I said, yeah, let's do it. And so, um, that company just turned 20 years old. We, we started a company called United States Cowboy back then. And, and, uh, as you know, you, you know, some of the guys that run it for me and yep. it's, we've had a, you know, a really great run and rodeo and, and just the Western marketing and media, and you know, been tremendous. And so that was, you know, so that, you know, at that point was a, was a, obviously a, you know, a, a wild left turn because here I was literally a CEO of a, of a very large company in a public company, um, and then I literally walked across the street where I was going to Staples and buy my own paper and pens and, you know, it was, it was a, a bit of a, you know, a crazy gut check. So, I'm
0: such a rodeo fan. You know, there's, it is such a quintessential American institution. Um, I mean, the, the pageantry, the, the athleticism, uh, the coordination I mean it, it, you know rodeo is it just and in my opinion it's everything good about America. Uh,
1: well it, it, <clears> I, the one thing I I found several things you know in our time there it, it, it's one is you just have salt of the earth people people that are just I mean look you've always got outliers but by and large just phenomenal salt of the earth people and honest and hardworking and driven. But I think the thing that, that really struck me the most is, is how they pulled for each other, even when they were competing against each other. It's amazing that, that you'll see a a barrel race and they're sharing a barrel horse or a calf roping event. And they're, you know, they're sharing another guy's horse, you know, and, who could beat him? you know, and, and he's letting him use his horse, you know, and, and, but that was just, you know, it's pervasive throughout the, the sport and throughout the West. And I think it goes back to helping, you know, with barn raisings or helping, you know, somebody fix their fence or sharing vegetables from the garden, you know, it just, um, you know, I, I think it's, and we'll get back to this later in the talk, but it's a part of America that, I believe is, is making a very rapid comeback and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see, but, but to sort of to carry on. So I'm, I'm, you know, doing this, which doesn't take a ton of my time at the time. And, and I had some, some people helping me. And, and so, you know, I was looking around for kind of what was next. And I, and I met the parent company at the time of Host Communications. And, and basically when I met them, they, they explained to me the company, you know, was in some trouble. Had just lost, you know, six and a half million dollars of EBITDA, and 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 then also lost an NCAA contract, big one. And would I be interested in, you know, moving to Lexington and and trying to turn it around? And I and I, you know, I just built this am, amazing home on our dream place and but something you know just something was inside me he said let's you know I'd always kind of dreamed about sports and business even when uh, those dozen years I was in the carpet industry so I so we did it so Susie and I up and I, I commuted about 10 months um, which was brutal and then uh, we moved the family to, to Lexington and, and you know basically I, I started in October of 02 there and then And I think the family moved up sometime in 2003 and, you know, it was a, it was a really great experience. Rick, you know, had um, met a lot of incredible people, had a very solid top team. I mean, it was so interesting because when we'd gone through the other three couple of turnarounds in the carpet industry, we really had wiped out a lot of people and brought in our own team and, you know, but when I went to host, I'd, I'd sort of made up my mind that that I that I really wanted to work with with who was there. So I hardly brought any anybody new in, very few, and just tried to make it work with with everybody that was there. And, and it was a great experience. We had we had a lot of lot of fun, and it worked hard, and it was you know difficult because of the situation the company was in, but. Yeah, you know, I was very proud of the work work we did there, and and really in the summer of '05 we came to a very difficult decision, and that and the company still has you know had some rough roads ahead, and we had really two main businesses. One was one was the obviously the media rights business for colleges, which was challenging, and then we had uh, the event business. So we had we owned you know, the NBA hoop it up and got milk three on three and some of those. And I felt like that was a strong part of the future of the company because we owned those events versus the rental business versus, you know, renting the college rights. And, and and to make a very long story short, basically the board and the board and I did not agree. And, um, and, and, and there were some things that, you know, were going on that I, wasn't aware of capital wise with with the owners of the company, and so they, you know, basically we we parted ways in the in the summer of '05, and and as you know, right right on the heels of that, um, I'd been looking at Action Sports Media, which Paul Allen owned, as a potential add on to Host, and and when I left Host, I very briefly tried to put a private equity deal together to buy Host to to um, you know, to relieve these guys in Atlanta, their, all their financial stuff and, and, you know, put it behind them, but they decided to, to spin out another company of theirs and bolt it on to host. And, and so it could sort of prop it up. And, and Tom Stoltz came in and did a tremendous job and, and, uh, he and I really have become great friends as a result of it. And so it was a, you know, it was, it was a good thing for host. And honestly, it was a good thing for me because we left and, and uh, I took some of my team with me, and we bought Action Sports Media from Paul Allen, as I said. And, and, we, had, uh, and we owned Jumbotrons all throughout the, the nation, college football stadiums and, and some basketball stadiums. It was a great business. The company had great contracts, and we were very fortunate. In about, about 28 months, we, we flipped the company um, to Learfield and, and ISP at the time to, to Greg Brown, and Ben Sutton, uh, in a joint venture, they came together and bought the company and, and our investors had a, had a big win and, and management did okay. And so it was, uh, you know, it was just a, a great, you know, part of our career and, and, and sort of a, a nice, um, carry on top for the college sports business at the time. And so, uh, you know,
0: I, I find that, um, a lot of times, leaders don't know when when to pull the trigger. You know, they don't know. Hey, this is the best thing for us and our shareholders. Sell the thing. I've I've watched people hang on, maybe out of ego or pride or a lot of other things. When the market says you're better off turning this thing loose, um, and you were smart enough to see that. Uh, let me ask you a, this: It
1: was one of the hardest decisions, Rick, because I'm sure
0: because it was because doing great,
1: it, yeah. We were doing great and and we you know, I was making good money and so for for me personally it probably wasn't the best decision, but for my investors it was absolutely the right decision and and it actually paid back for me later because those investors said kind words to people down the road that helped help my you know, career later. But you were gonna
0: ask I was gonna ask you, you know, you know, I got. Um, I had an agency. We've been friends for a long time. I had an agency that um, that Host owned part of, and then we ended up selling it to a British publicly traded company. And I ended up getting fired. Um, and you know, I learned more from that experience and maybe maybe all the successes um, th- that I've had. What, what were some of the key learnings coming out of Host that you took and said? hey, I'm going to take this and I'm, I'm not going to make this mistake again, or I'm going to do this or do that. Talk, talk a little bit about that.
1: You know, I'd say I, even back before host, I'd had a number of those experiences. You know, when you go through turnarounds, I say this to young people all the time. You really never learn anything in business when things are going well. You know, you sort of think, you know, you're, you're feeling good about yourself. Things are rocking and rolling. So you don't you don't learn a lot. You learn when crap hits the fan, and so we, you know, we had plenty of that at Collins and Aitman, at Interface, and certainly at Host. I mean, one of my, you know, I, I can tell you that, you know, I've worked for now um, a couple of founder chairmans, and 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 those are are challenging. You got to have a, a a really unique mindset in in those situations because those people. It, the company is a lot like a child to them, and they, in anything you do or say, negative about it has just a really tough impact on on them. And so, um, you know, going back certainly could have been more sensitive to that. That's, you know, that would be one takeaway. Um, in the college rights business, you and I, you know, have had you know lots of conversation about this and and i was about 20 years wrong but if you go back and you know somewhere there's a usa today article that's still out there where i where i kind of said that the rights fees will become prohibitive you know and and i thought it would be you know 10 years and it took 15 or you know 17 i think from when that article was published um because a lot of people made a lot of money in the in the interim um but you know, I think, but you were it, right. I mean, it, it, I, you know, it, it,
0: I, you're kind about the way you say it. I'm calling it cocaine. I'm calling it institutional cocaine. They've gotten so used to that, that they're addicted to it. And it's just, well, and it's both, a house of cards. Sides, both really. sides. I, mean, both, I agree.
1: Both I agree. The giver and the taker yeah. were, you know, and so, um, so I, I really learned at that point, it's better, you know, if you can, you know, to own, you know, own things and own your own destiny and, And, um, but you know, look, it's been a tremendous business. And like I said, made a lot of people, a lot of money. So it's, you know, there's nothing I I have to say negative about it. I learned, you know, I learned that it's, you know, you talked about my crazy career. You know, I I laughed when I did an interview like this similar years ago, I said, the bottom line is my mother said I could do anything. And I believed her And, (laughs) and, and it, it's really true. The other thing she said, which over and over is always look for the good first in people. And so when I went to to host, I, as I said, I, I decided that I wasn't going to to overhaul the team. I was going to work with with whoever was there and just, you know, try to be a coach and and I and I really probably enjoyed that as much as anything really that I've ever done. I mean, working with those people through that time, those difficulties really made it made it special for me. And so I you know, my I'm a glass half full, as you know, kind of guy. And I just it was a great experience. Even though it didn't end, you know, the way I had had hoped or even wanted it to, you know, it's it, it was a great experience.
0: Well, Faulkner once said the the past isn't dead. It it, it even isn't passed. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that we've written the last chapter of the multimedia rights business and all that, and your engagement with that. I think, I still think there's some things ahead. Um, you know, I like the fact that there were people at host that you work with that, that you later brought along with some other ventures. I, I one of the things, one of the most creative things that I, I've seen anybody do that y'all did was the Wrangler network, um, Talk about that! That that is such a breakthrough concept. Uh, well, again, the, the, again, you might be ten years early.
1: <laughs> well, well, so we were certainly early, but you know, one of the in our twenty-year history in the rodeo business, we we've, we've done really everything. We started out, you know, was putting on our own rodeos and being our own sanctioning body throughout the southeast, and so we did. All kind of crazy things that we intersected with with your company back then, as we were putting on rodeos at NASCAR races, which was um, which my wife would say was wildly expensive, and she'd be right. But it was also um, it was also a way it was really kind of our first and certainly my first chance to make a name for ourselves in sports. And and as time went on, we we've done everything in this particular business to from running. You know, putting our own on our rodeos, running the media for the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association, running their Extreme Bulls tour, um, just, you know, all kind of things. And, And it really became to a point where television was was not sustainable for rodeo, in our opinion, at the time. And this is about six years ago when we came to this conclusion, we were, you know, the production costs were high. There was no more rights fees because the big sports had sucked them up. And we made the decision at the time. You know, and, and we watched Wrangler over on, you know, every time Rodeo got in trouble, they ran to Wrangler and Wrangler was getting, you know, tired of that. And so we just sat around, in you know, a really in sort of a planning mindset. And again, as you pointed out, a lot of these guys had come with me from, from my time at Host. And, you know, this is many years, many years later. And we remembered, you know, all the high school games that we had streamed in those days at host under the IHI banner. And so, you know, another concept way ahead of its time was IHI. And so Tim Campbell, who was who was there, uh, you know, was is the foremost expert. And he had his own company, you know, six years ago when we started this discussion and of course, Sam Dunn, who's been with me, you know, for 20 years, was, you know, was with, at host with us. So we all knew each other very well. So we just sat around and said, "What if, you know, what if we took, you know, the live stream video inside of an arena? Because we'd worked in every one of these arenas running the Extreme Bulls Tour, so we knew it like the back of our hand. Plus, we had the Action Sports Video Board history, and so it made sense. We said, "What if we took this?" video feed and the audio feed and married them together and, and live streamed it, just took it straight over the internet. And we said, that's doable. And we said, now we, you know, we need, how do we fund it? And so we went to Wrangler and we said, look, we're going to create your own branded network called the Wrangler network. And, and, um, and we launched it six years ago and it had, it had a great start, but last year it had, you know, 58 million views and, and it's a real, you know, it's a real force in the industry. And, um, and I got to give my team and Wrangler both credit for, for really coming up with something that was very unique and is, and is still unique today, but 60% of the people watch it on their phone it's, uh, it's a juggernaut in short form content. It's just been a, a very successful venture.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> about the fact that I, I've said repeatedly that I think a lot of the marketing communication industry that tends to be very coastally biased, very New York, L.A. biased, really doesn't understand heartland consumers. And and when you don't understand heartland consumers, then you, you certainly don't understand something like rodeo. You know, the rodeo is one of the places that they still pray <laughs> before an event and they and they make a big deal an appropriately big deal of the flag ceremony and they you know it's about family and faith and flag and and patriotism and all those kinds of things and I think a lot of people don't don't seem to understand that uh talk talk a little bit about that and, and and what you think is going to happen with the with Heartland activities.
1: But certainly one of the one of the things that has always drawn me to rodeo and the western way of life is is patriotism, you know love of God and country is and I said it earlier, just really great people that that care about each other and want and and truly want each other to do well. There's no I win you lose you know for the most part mentality it's it's let's see how we can all win together. And I, I think that goes back to the, to the very beginnings of the United States of America. And I'm all about it. And I think, you know, even though we're in tumultuous and I'm in crazy tumultuous times, it, I, I do believe this coronavirus is going to serve a, an interesting purpose for a resurgence in, in rural America. I'm seeing it. Um, as you well know, I've got a uh, Susie and I have a um, small ranch south of Knoxville where we live. We don't live on the ranch, but we're but we're looking hard at it now because of all that's happened. And I think this rush to downtown and living in, in cramped quarters, I think is 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 going to see a a bit of a reversal. Uh, I think you know you're going to people have um, I think have enjoyed for the most part and get to know their families again. Not traveling as much, um, uh, and while you and I have missed travel because because we, we happen to be two people that, that enjoy getting out and seeing people and, and communicating, but we've, we've also talked about it and, we, and we've enjoyed the peace of being home and, and getting to you know really getting to see things and be with our families like we haven't before. so I, I think we're to see a drastic change
0: in that we, um, we we did a recent show on on f- focused on the outdoors and you know we've seen hunting and fishing licenses go through the roof we're seeing more yes. people buy tents and rvs and yeah i, I really do believe you're going to see i think it woke a lot of people up i think it woke a, a lot of young people up that said I do, you know this is crazy i think you'll yeah, yeah. see people grow grow
1: their own food you're yeah. going to see people pay pay very close attention to you know um to what they spend their money on. Well, I mean, it, it's. I think it's a revolutionary time in many ways. Not just, not just, um, you know, for the election and things like that. I mean, just down to the how am I going to live my life? Revolution is is going to be very very different. I mean, I, you know, and and look, I have five children. You, you know, you've got children that are we all we you and I have similar ages. And that's you know they're gonna control the world going forward. You and I are obviously you know not you <laughs> yeah. know we're, elvis we're, is, again, Elvis we're, has
0: left the building <laughs> yeah and
1: and so I think you know they're just not gonna do some of the things that we did, and I think that'll be for the better i mean we made we made sacrifices that um we felt we needed to make, and I think um you know it's had you know, certain effects that haven't always been great. And, and so, you know, I, as you know, I've been through a divorce 20 something years ago and that was painful. And, and so I think you're going to see a difference and I'm all for it. And, and, you know, and, and so, you know, our company now is, you know, so when I left um when I, when I sort of did the final thing, when we sold action sports media, I decided then really to be, when we, we sort of restarted the Whitener company, in 2009, we became a consulting and investing company, basically, and and so we're as you know we're we're invested in you know in, at any given time eight to ten businesses and th- that are all sort of related to things we've done in the past, and then and then I spend a lot of my time helping, you know, trying to help. Um, sort of c level executives with with their companies or high net worth individuals like boo was for us with with things that he had spent his money on but well, well you, I think,
0: yeah you, you I mean you if you think about it you've come full circle you, you wanted to be a coach that's what you're doing now I mean I mean you're coaching you're coaching businesses and executives and key people into you know, how to maximize what they do uh, talk. You, you mentioned Boone Pickens. We talked about him earlier. Well, um, you talk about a larger than life character. I mean, the American dream, probably if you looked in the dictionary and, and, and looked under the term American dream, it would probably say, see Boone Pickens. Tell me, tell me about your relationship with him, what he meant to you.
1: You know, I, it was, um, gosh, it's hard for me to talk about it without, getting emotional he was such an impact he had such an impact on on my life and my family again i got to thank mike holder at oklahoma state for really putting us together when i sold action sports media i really wasn't sure what i was going to do i knew i wanted to just kind of keep it small do my own thing so he he um i called boone who i met you know numerous times and been with numerous times around you know everything from football to golf to politics whatever so I'm down. I went down to see him and he said, you know, what are you gonna do? And I said, Well, I'm not really sure. And he said, he said, Well, look, I've I invested in about half a dozen businesses that I have no idea what they are or why I did it. Would you just caretake them? And so we had, you know, ten good years of just working really throughout all the different companies that he was invested in or owned a piece of and just being uh part of his his leadership team, which was, um, which was just amazing. Boone, you know, was the ultimate entrepreneur. He started out at, at uh, Phillips Petroleum and just, just could not get comfortable with the, the corporate uh, lifestyle and, um, kind of, kind of where I got at a certain point at the end of yeah, my y'all, time. Y'all at, are both cowboys. At, at, yep, at Interface, yep, and, yep. and he, he just, you know, he went out and, started his own gig in the oil business and, and, you know, grew it into just uh, an unbelievable empire. And, and, and look, and he, and he sort of got sideways at one point with the company he built and shareholders and board. And so he left and started his own thing again, really late, you know, older than you and I are. And he, in fact, he made more money, in his life after 70 than he made his whole career, which is is hope for us all that are old. But he, um, you know, what I, you know, my biggest takeaways from from being around him for so long was, one, he was unbelievably generous. Um, You know, there are hospitals all throughout Texas that, you know, really wouldn't be in the shape they're in without Boone Pickens. I mean, there's a $50 million cancer building at MD Anderson in his name, UT Southwest Medical Center, Baylor Hospital. He, you know, he, gave, he, he gave away a billion dollars, a billion dollars, gave it away. That's the kind of guy he was. But even down to, you know, I tell people all the time and, I'm, you know, I'm, I've, I've dealt with, you know, the poorest of people and the wealthiest of people. And sometimes, the, as you know, the wealthiest of people forget where they came from Boone was not that guy. In fact, one of the things I love to tell is that, you know, every Friday Boone left and went to his ranch up in the panhandle of Texas. And it was a remarkable place. And he, you know, he flew his plane up there every Friday and came back, you know, Sunday or Monday. And I can tell you that not just me, but many people who, if you were ever around that office on a Thursday or Friday, he would say, why don't you come to the ranch this weekend? And I mean, he meant it and he would, and, and if you wanted to do it, he would take you. And there's so many people that just don't get that. They, they wouldn't invite people cause they were, you know, not of their class or whatever. This guy was so inclusive, so amazing. Um, just, just so generous. That's the best thing I can. And now obviously he was driven He was very smart, um, a tremendous optimist. But when it comes down to the core of him, he was a generous guy that really did care about people.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. um, uh, We've got a lot of people today that, that are questioning capitalism. Uh, and, and, and he was the best of capitalism. You know, you you can't give a billion dollars away unless you make more than a billion dollars. I mean, I mean, the key is, you know, I always say this compassion, uh, capitalism without compassion, or in, in in my case, I say uh, capitalism without Christ is, it can be a sin, but he, he, he he walked the talk. I mean, he, he He did, he he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, every day and, and was pretty special. We, we got just a few more minutes. I want you to look yeah. into crystal ball, you know, here we're here in, 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 you know, in July with, uh, um, it's still in the middle of this coronavirus thing. We, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but, but look, look and tell me what you think is going to happen, especially in college athletics.
1: Well, I, I know that economically there's tremendous pressure for, for all colleges to have, you know, the big colleges to have college football um, and to have school. I mean, I've still got two in college and, and, you know, those, those schools, you know, my youngest is at Wofford and my, my um, middle daughters at Tennessee. And they, they both schools are really want kids on campus and certainly want football to happen. Uh, I think not only economically, but psychologically, and I, and I know, and I'm proud of particularly, this you know the conference commissioners ha- have by and large bitten their tongue and not tried to be you know um, have too many, I guess predictions that, because time is our friend in this in this situation, just to see to see what happens. So I believe we will have college football. I believe that that they will do their best to have as many fans in the stand as, you know, as is safe. I certainly think you're going to see, you know, mask around for a long time, sanitizer around for a long time. I mean, even if Rick, if a, if a vaccine was created tomorrow, there are many people that won't take it. You know, they're yeah. afraid of yeah. vaccines. Yeah. And yeah. so even though we might get one, I think we're going to be dealing with this particular thing for a while. And the truth is we're not going to know, Really about this virus for years. What really I mean? Why does it affect one person not another? So I, I think we're just going to have to go forward in a very cautious and and ambitious way, and hopefully have a very strong and profitable college football season because it's very important to the to the fabric of the country and and economically it's an engine that I'm not sure you know, we can do without, I'm certain that colleges can't do without, you know, our athletic departments for sure can't do without colleges also, you know, would be, you know, would, some of them would be in trouble without it. So, um, that's my predictions. We'll have it. It'll be very closely monitored. There are a lot of smart people out there trying to do the right thing to make it as safe as possible. And that's what I think we're,
0: we're looking at well i'm gonna we we got a lot more we could talk about and we're, we're a little bit out of time today but yeah. i want to get you back uh in the fall at that point we'll know where we are and then we can kind of i want to talk next time about some long-term predictions um uh, you know both both about the country and about the state of college sports and about the state of marketing and capitalism in general because i think these are important things i will say this college football can bring us back together like nothing else and if, if no other reason i wanted to to come back in a big big way so i listen pal i can't thank you enough for being with me today
1: from i, I the enjoyed bridge. it very much you thank mentioned. you and and uh, good luck to you and i'll see you soon all right thanks buddy
0: On today's segment of On the Road with Rick, I'm going to break from tradition and actually talk about a chain restaurant, a place where a little bit of change can get you a lot of food. And this one is actually in trouble having recently filed for bankruptcy protection. I'm talking about my all-time go-to road food classic, The Crystal. What can I say I love crystal hamburgers, usually by the sack full. I have a very long relationship with crystals. My mom would shop at the Kroger in Belvedere Plaza in Southeast Atlanta, and we'd get to eat crystals on grocery day on Saturday. That was such a treat to be able, we didn't eat out much when I was a kid, but we would get crystals on a a Saturday. Later, when I, was in, uh, when I was a college basketball coach at Swanee, I, I knew virtually every crystal location between Atlanta and Mont Eagle Mountain. Mo, most were open late night, and some were even open 24 hours. Um, it's really easy to drive and eat those two-bite hamburgers. You can hold one in one hand and hold the steering wheel in the other. I also like their chili pups and their corn pups, but mostly I love those crystal hamburgers. I hope the crystal can stay alive because I'd sure miss them on the road with Rick. That's today's show. I hope to see you back with us next week from the bridge.